something in the water taught me how to crawl Something in the water taught me Hey, welcome back to Something in the Water podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean Clark. Along with Uncle Dave Griffin, and our guest this weekend is... Bill McIntosh. You, our, you hit the bottom of the barrel for guests. <laughs> That's good all I friend, can say. Our good friend, Bill McIntosh from Wake Cross, Georgia. Glad to have you, Bill. Well, I'm glad to be here in such esteemed company. <laughs> yes, sir. Old uh, and new. Huh? Old and new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is uh, it's only it's Cherokee Heights that we're sitting in. Uh, in Justin Mercer of Caution Light Media over there off camera. He's our he's the man that makes it all go. And uh, we're sitting in his house in the middle of Cherokee Heights, one block off of Ava Street. And uh, he probably don't want everybody to know where he lives. Well, that's all I'm going to say. Well, this is pre-recorded. When by the time you see this, we'll be gone. Yeah, he moves with every so week. Don't so. don't come and bother him. <laughs> that's right. But uh, Bill, you live just a couple of blocks from here right. in Cherokee Scruggs, Heights, Scruggs Street, Scruggs Street, and uh, uh, Cherokee Heights. Uh, for all y'all. Uh, aficionados out there, uh, you know that that's where Graham Parsons was raised up. Down the road. 12 years of his life in Waycross, Georgia. We talk about Graham Parsons a lot on this podcast, so I'm sure y'all have come to expect that. But, Bill, it's good to have you, uh, fellow Cherokee Haitian, Haitian. (laughs) (laughs) Haitian? Yeah. Bill is uh he's kind of like done it all. He's he's a, a musician uh played in some local bands around here back in the days and uh he's he uh, got a degree in uh music and two of them. two degrees yeah, in music. Man. Taught uh he was uh, an instructor at several schools in Georgia and uh He's played on cruise ships. He's played in uh, orchestras. He's uh, he's a historian uh, too. But we'll hopefully we can we can touch all the bases and get in get into all of that. How you doing, buddy? I'm all right, man. Yeah, just alive and kicking. That's all I can do. Well, um. You had a little scare lately, right? Yeah, uh, well, little... I had a little skin cancer issue. Then after they got in, it was it was pretty big, and um, yeah. did a couple of procedures locally, and it kept getting worse. So I went up to medical college, uh, Georgia and Augusta, and they basically peeled back half my face and hey. took all the cancer out and sewed it back up and <clears> kept <throat> my lymph nodes and my salivary glands and. I went through six weeks of radiation. Mm. But, man, I'm from Cherokee Heights. Don't slow us down. Yes. <laughs> That's the way it is out here, man. Yeah. <laughs> we don't play. Well, but, yeah, it's uh, it's all good. People have been real good to me. I really appreciate well, good, people have been good, very good well, to me. Well, you've been in our hearts and prayers, too, buddy. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the old days. Uh, you're... you're 
bit younger than me. I don't know exactly how much younger. I'm 63. 63, so you're five years younger than I am. So time I was graduating from high school, you were just about to enter. Well, I, I grew up in Douglas. I went you second did. through the tenth grade. I that's, did not know that's that. my Rodney Mills connection. See, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Rodney Mills, the great right. producer I, in rock and roll. Yeah, from I, I used to follow that band around. You know, Thirty Eight Special. No, the Bushman, the original. Oh, his Bushman. original band. Um, back then, you know, people weren't so mean and. I was at sixth grade. I would my mom would let me ride my bicycle at eleven o'clock at night down to the uh, rec center three blocks away, and I'd sit back there and listen to Rodney and Junior and Joey and all, yeah. Harry, all those boys Harry back in their heyday. That was a big, big influence on me. But I've always, I was born here, always considered at home. You yeah. know, been in and out of Waycross over the years. But yeah, that the Douglas is kind of my Rodney Mills connection. <laughs> yeah. And the Bushmen, that band that you're talking about, uh, um, didn't they? Uh, did they? Some of the members of the Bushmen later become the Candy Men. Was no, it? the Candy Men uh, were, ended up being Atlanta Rhythm Section. Okay, they backed up Roy Orbison for a long mm-hmm. time, and uh, they were a good studio group. But just as a, none of them wanted to go out and play live. And of what I always heard about uh, uh, Atlanta Rhythm Section were was that they were a great studio band, and it, if you ever saw them live, it'd be a hit and miss kind of thing. Yeah, you know, they, they just when could never left, recreate it. When Buddy built Studio One, mm-hmm. um, and Rodney designed that, he that they brought Atlanta Rhythm Section with them at that point mm-hmm. because they had been working some over at. Um, Lefevre sound before yeah. uh, Buddy opened that. And then, you know, Bill Lowry and all came in on that too. Uh-huh. So. so you uh, actually grew up, the majority of your childhood was in Douglas, which is one town away from Waycross to the west of us. I was back and forth a lot. My yeah. grandma's house, the house I live in now. Oh, okay. I was over here a lot. Yeah. But once you, uh, uh, for the 11th and 12th, you came yeah. mm-hmm. Ware County? Ware County. Yeah. Was it Ware County High School? Okay. Good band program. By that time, yeah, it was. We talked about that on our last podcast with Gary Brown. Yeah, we had, my senior year, we had, at Ware County, we had five all-state musicians, and Waycross had three. So combined, that one year, we had eight all-state musicians in this town. Hey. Okay. A lot good of times, man. A lot of talented lips. <laughs> uh I'm assuming you were one of the all state musicians. I huh? still think that yes. it was a mistake. Yes, I was, but I was a <laughs> terrible music reader back then. I think it was a mistake, but I accepted the medal just the same. <laughs> well, just to let you know, I was uh um selected to as the candidate for governor's honors program and uh, went all the way to Atlanta. And uh, this, uh, this is uh, shades of my son, Connor Griffin got, uh, got half past Macon and, uh, and my uncle Bud uh, drove us up there, drove 
me, my mama, and uh, her mama, and Uncle Bud's mama, my grandma, with the four of us, drove up to Atlanta for me to audition for Governor's Honors Program. And about half past making, I said, I forgot my drumsticks. Oh, no. <laughs> Sound like Connor? Right? Yeah. Well, he forgets his drum. <laughs> well, uh we got up, it was a Saturday, and it was uh, probably about February. It was drizzly cold. And I remember Uncle Bud put me out on the sidewalk in, in, in Atlanta, and I ran into a music store up there, downtown Atlanta, bought me some drumsticks. And uh, he kept cir- circling the block till I came back out on the sidewalk. I got to the audition, and in the room, in walks, the assistant band director for Ware County as the judge, Dan Galtney. Oh, man. And I don't know what that triggered in me. It was like, oh, hell, I know this guy. And, and uh, I just uh, – Took, I, took I, the pressure I, off? No. I, it, it added pressure it added for pressure. some reason. For some reason. I, know, man, I should I have been a shoe man. Uh, yeah, huh? You got, you got, yeah, well, maybe that was – I, I just wasn't expecting him, you know, of all people. I mm-hmm. I was expecting a stranger, you I know, know. I think I, I would have done better with a stranger than some. I played for 100,000 people before. But I, one Sunday morning, I played a special and sang over at the Presbyterian Church here. Yeah. And, the, you know, the baby grand, and they got the choir kind of around you. I was the most nervous I ever was. A bunch of people sitting right on top of me while I was playing. Yeah. I was yeah. like, yeah. I'd much minutes. rather sing to a bunch of people yeah. than just. Five, well, there's something about <laughs> something about a stranger, you know, when you go out of yeah. town for a gig, you, you're a little more you. relaxed, yeah. you know, because like these people don't know me. Yeah, I could be. But I if I was getting anybody, ju- I want. If be. I was getting judged, and <laughs> yeah. one of the judges is from the school, I'd be like, Psh, "We got this. We one. got this." Uh, yeah. He does. Sean, and, Sean didn't know Dan Galtney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had him. Uh, uh, he was a hard nose. Oh yeah. Yeah. He used to say, well, when you write, if you wanted well, to do anything you wasn't interested in, he'd say, well, when you write your book, I'll read it. And so when I wrote my sight reading book that got endorsed by three super heavyweights in L.A., and they wrote the forward, I mailed him a copy of my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another uh, mantle that uh, Bill wears that I did not say at the outset. He's a, a pup, uh, an author. Uh, book writer, whatever. And uh, didn't you say you're publisher too? Yeah. Um, just basically, what I've done in the last three or four years is I tried to combine a lot of the things that I had done during my career. Um, and one of them was that <clears throat> I just assumed everybody, when they heard a song, could play it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I was playing trumpet or saxophone in bands, I'd hear a song maybe that my oldest brother had played in the 60s, and all of a sudden, boom, I just play it. Mm-hmm. And so I started uh, I started writing lead sheets and doing transcriptions, and now one of my big things is, um, is I've got over 400 arrangements out for three-piece horn section, and uh, I sold in 20 countries. Dang. So it's a— uh, Which three horns? Well, that's what's unique about my stuff is— I include parts for everything. So whatever three horns you have, you'll have all three parts. 
Oh my gosh! But how many parts is it that you have to write then? Well, if with the computer, a, with the computer program, once I write the parts, yeah, it does all the transposing and stuff for me. That's pretty cool. So, you know, anything to keep from getting a real day job. <laughs> You're speaking of day jobs. You had your share of them, haven't you? Oh yeah. I so out of high school, where you were an all state. Uh, band member, and you you graduate. You uh, Troy State one year. Troy State, okay, they, which is a great music school. I, to be honest with you, I was really surprised. It's more marching band, and okay, but I I don't know the that's the, Alabama. Yeah, that oh. thing about getting up and going to class didn't really agree with me. <laughs> me neither. And so they they told me I probably need to stay home the next year and sleep. <laughs> So I I took some time off before I went back. I took about three years off and I went back to Valdosta State. Great, great jazz program. There are so many great. Is that musicians. Ed Barr? No, uh, Bob Greenhaw okay. was doing it then. And Didn't Ed Barr? He did it before Bob Greenhaw. Was he the, like the instructor over there? Yeah. yeah. Um, Bob Greenhaw has sent more players to the bigs, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And uh, that was a great education. I've I've done uh band directing, middle school, high school, taught um, part I, I taught music appreciation at Waycross College. Um, I remember that. I went yeah, out there I had as, you your, out, as, uh, as a guest one that's night. That's right. You were a guest lecturer. <laughs> I was a lecturer. Yeah. That's what, what they call it in about? academia. What did I talk about? It was during Graham Parsons Festival. It's talking about Graham Parsons? Right, right. Okay. Um, but I've been fortunate. I've, I've taught. I've... Uh, I've played, um, I've been fortunate to get to play, I played like with the Temptations, and uh, of course you and I, we, we did the Percy Sledge gig several times together. That's right. Um, Roll that beautiful bean footage, Percy Sledge. Yeah, we did uh, it. We did it. We did a Percy Sledge flyer. I have. Uh, I've, well, got I mean, one, uh, <laughs> I've got one of the posters signed. I do too. There there's, you go. there's mine right there. there says, yes, sir. Today, Percy Sledge. That's the same thing you said to me. <laughs> <laughs> he called you Dave. <laughs> well, that was, I've also got a picture of us uh, uh, on stage with him that he signed. Wait a minute. Is that what we call ourselves, Sledgehammer? Yep. That was the first time we did it. <laughs> a special guest, Sledgehammer. Yeah. We was just his backup band. Right. Uh, but, see, what happened was... That was March twenty third, two thousand one. I don't remember if that was the first or second time, but it's probably the first time. I think that was the first time. So uh, uh, we may have uh, uh, done both of the gigs in the same year. Uh, I don't recall, but twice he came to Waycross. Twice he played at Little Nights. Uh, it's a beautiful little nightclub here in Waycross. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, somehow or another, was it through you that somebody reached out from his camp no, to somebody here? No, you actually called me for it. I did? Okay. Yep. Well, I can't remember exactly how. Were you working at the music store then? I was. That was probably where it came from. I don't recall I played how with him before it, that. Well, you, you might have been the catalyst. Me. No, then. you called me. Because remember, I, I borrowed some sound equipment. We didn't have a sound system back then. Well, what happened was somebody got in touch with with us, and we put together uh, 
Well, we had a band. We had a band called uh, Rhythm Oil. Right. It was uh, myself on rhythm guitar, John Randall Smith on drums, Bill Smith on lead guitar, Tony Kaysen on lead guitar, uh, Steve Glisson. Glisson. Nat on, played the first show. Napoleon. Nat? Napoleon. Played the first show. Williams played right. the first show. Wow. Yeah. And the second uh, time Steve was there. Okay. One Steve Glisson played the second show as very the bass player. Bass now, and then we pulled you in for keyboards or yes, horns? Because I was playing keyboards because Bill wasn't playing keys in the band back then. Okay. So I don't wonder in. did Bill play in that because we wouldn't have had no need for two guitar players. Well, I don't think. You know, the first time, I think it was, Tony wasn't there. Okay. The second time he was, because I remember they did Whiter Shade of Pale, and yeah. instead of playing the organ intro, they did it as a harmonized two-guitar lead that oh, just blew Percy away. Okay. Wow. <laughs> you know, I've got that, that on was tape. Exciting. I've got that on tape. I've, I've got been, a dat recording wow. of it. That's great. I'd, I'd, I'd love to you. get a copy of that. But yeah, that was exciting, man. Yeah. To back to be able to say I backed up Percy Sledge uh, twice, and <laughs> not uh, once, but twice. But what's been neat about my career is that through different affiliations I've had, like when I was in college, we had the drummer from the Count Basie band spend a year with us. Dang. Had <clears throat> Red Rodney, who was uh, Charlie Parker's uh, trumpet player. Uh huh. We got to open for Dizzy Gillespie, Bill Woods, uh, and, you know, working on the cruises and uh, different gigs I've played, you know, it's uh, it's been pretty cool to just have a little touch of, of, of the real, you know, of the big guys. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like you have to pinch yourself, and uh, I'm standing here talking to Dizzy Gillespie. Wow. You know, that's just like... And Red Rodney is is huge in the jazz world. Yeah, um, he took Miles Davis's place, uh -huh. and um, so it's been it's been really cool to get to uh, rub shoulders a little bit, and and more importantly to learn from these people. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it's I think probably the highlight of my career though was um, in 2012. I sounded taps at Arlington National Cemetery. Wow. That was for me. That was it. It's as good as it'll ever get. How did you get that gig? Um, I was in an organization called Bugles Across America. Called? Bugles, Bugles Across, Across America. And they it's an organization that is trying to stamp out the electric bugle. <laughs> you know, basically, if you, buglesacrossamerica.org, if you go there and you request a bugler for a military funeral, they'll get you the real thing. Yeah. And so it was the uh, 150th anniversary of the bugle call Taps. Mm -hmm. That morning at 1030, we did a mass harmonized version with 197 players. Wow. Good and Lord. then we got to choose our location to play it solo at lunch. And, of course, I did it in the Confederate section. Nice. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, you, were from, you were from the South. You got that right. Well, uh, that's almost like uh, bugles against bugles across, not against. Uh, but uh, <laughs> bugles, uh, for uh, just shorthand 
you know, purposes did they often just shorten it to <laughs> yeah, it's, but bugles across America. But what they were going with was hey, Sean, they were Sean take take days drink. <laughs> they were uh, they were against electric. That's almost like uh, right. the purists that uh, well frowned on Bob Dylan when he went electric at hey, the Newport Folk Festival. It's funny because the guy on the electric bugle is a friend of mine. He's the guy I started with in Douglas. I've never seen an electric bugle. You, you have. I, I promise you, they it looks like a regular bugle, and they got an MP3 player in the end of it. A MP3 player, yes, because they cut back so much with uh, honor guards and all of the and band programs. Well, what's actually playing though is the it's person. a recording. Oh, it's a recording. Oh, so the person there Taking is a person it. holding it though, right? But he's not playing it, and he's uh, not playing it. Okay, yeah, well, so. I could do that. That's Billy Vanilli. Uh-huh. <laughs> as far I was as picturing some goes. kind of uh, got buttons on the yeah, side of it. I was thinking it was like, electrified, you know, like a, it's a recording, like, like one of those a, electric uh, saxophones. Like bills. it might have a built-in mic or something. Wow, <laughs> that's cheating. Yeah, I think yeah. so. That ain't no fun. Yeah, <laughs> but that you know that that's cool though that you got recognized. Well, I tell you, man, it's been so cool, though, to get to experience a lot of the history uh, working through the jazz and the old soul. And, uh, you know, it's really, uh, it's, I've been a history uh, buff all my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was working on one cruise ship, I got to go to Mayan Indian ruins and climb up, just like you see on National Geographic. But, God. you know, it's... um. I'm I'm glad that I got to experience a lot of these things that this generation knows nothing about. Mm. They really don't. So. Well, we did. Uh, we grew up in a special time. The uh, uh, 1960s were uh, was a pretty influential decade uh, as far as music goes. It it started out <laughs> very innocent. And it ended up nine years later uh, at totally. the height of excess, yeah. you know. Well, it's just like, you know, starting with the jazz age. Mm-hmm. And it ended with White Bread Big Band. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then they had to start over. And the bebop stuff led to early rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And that led to, then we, got, we kept going to that until it got into excess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're very knowledgeable about all this stuff too, and you've used that. Uh, use your your knowledge and your research and stuff to. Uh, um, you've written a lot of uh, newspaper articles. Yeah, for, I, for the I, local paper. Yeah, and, when I first moved back here, um, I always remember my dad talking about. The city auditorium. He was always carrying on. I saw so and so there. I saw so and so, and I was thinking to myself, you know, he's senile or something. I, I don't know. <clears throat> but at some point, I started seeing some real validity to what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And when I moved back here and uh, to take care of my mother before she passed away, and then I was here and I had some time, and I started going to the city auditorium, to the city library. I wish Connor had been there, there <laughs> then. Um, <laughs> And I basically went through every Waycross newspaper from about 1935 
to uh, maybe 60. Mm. Um, and I started out with it just looking at the city auditorium, but I also started taking notice and, and record of, of places around here that was using local musicians and who was playing and all that kind of stuff. So mm. it's, it's, been a, uh, it's been a very interesting journey. Um, and the, the people in this town, they've always been not very aware of mm. the great music tradition um, here. I mean, it survives to this day. There, there's always, you know, you pick up a cat and throw it, and you're going to hit a good musician in Waycross. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the only difference in me and most of the people are here is that I was crazy enough to pack up and go. Mm-hmm. But there, there, there are twenty or thirty guys in this town that are much better musicians than I'll ever be. Um, but um, as I've studied uh, what I call popular music of America from <coughs> let's say nineteen hundred forward, mm-hmm. um, I have. Uh, it's been an incredible journey, and uh, what what really brought this up was. I was, uh, you and I were at dinner one night, and I was telling you about the fact that the reason that the Beatles in Liverpool and mm-hmm. the whole Mercy Beat thing busted out before London did mm-hmm. was that Liverpool was a, uh, was a port. Seaport. It was an, it yeah. was an international seaport. Mm-hmm. And the British people that worked on the ship mm-hmm. or the Americans, they knew that uh, the red label Atlantic and the blues and the chess, you know, the blue <laughs> label and the red label and all of those were not available in England. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they were bringing that stuff in and, uh, you know, the young kids were just eating it up. Mm-hmm. So they were getting that, you know, where London was not getting it yet. Mm-hmm. Now they would eventually with, uh, but in London, you, you pretty much had to mail order and know what you wanted to get mm-hmm. that stuff. And, <laughs> you know, excuse me, the, the American music scene, you got New Orleans, you got everything in the world coming in down there. You know, yeah. it was started by the French, sold to the Spanish, taken back by the French, and then the Americans, and, and you had people from Haiti and Cuba and Guatemala and... Uh, you know, all mm-hmm. over, all of, you're bringing in all these influences. And after the Civil War, you had what's called uh, the big black migration. Mm-hmm. And again, it was about transportation. The Mississippi River, all points north. Chicago. Well, you, you saw Memphis built yeah. along the way. You saw St. Uh, Louis and Joplin mm-hmm. built with the ragtime. And long before New York was a haven, Chicago was home of American music. Mm-hmm. It was big in the blues um, and jazz. You know, uh, Louis Armstrong played yeah. with King Oliver there. He, they, he got, you know, New York came along later. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Waycross kind of falls into that same category. Um, How so? Well, I, I used to say when I, when I taught and when I've written materials and all, if you just, if you just listen to an artist on a song, 
you get a very limited, okay, if you're just a casual listener, that's great. But uh, an artist or a, a genre of music is a reflection of the people making it. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. You know, down in, in, in South Africa, they were, when they were getting fired up to go to war, you know, they were, they were making music. And so it was a reflection of what was going on around you. And I think one of the reasons that Waycross was such a hotbed is that before uh, interstate system, we're talking 30s, 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. uh, US-1 was the main thoroughfare all points north, started at the Keys, went through D.C., and all the way into Canada. Mm -hmm. And if you were going anywhere in South Carolina, you had to start out on one. It Pennsylvania. Was the main artery. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, all of these great artists were coming through Waycross, and they needed a drop-off place to get traveling money, mm -hmm. you know, probably during the middle of the week. Um, and then they built the city auditorium. And when the city auditorium was built, it had a horseshoe-shaped balcony. And you could, let me see how many, I wrote it down, 3,500 people. Wow. You could put 3,500 <laughs> people. And you put on top of that, pre-integration, Oak Street, half block behind the city auditorium. Mm -hmm. So these... Even big-name artists like Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, all of these people, when they travel south, uh, there was no hotels for them to stay in. It, it doesn't matter how big you were. You were not going to go in a restaurant to eat, eat if you were a black musician. You were not going to have a place to stay. Well, boom, you come to Waycross. We got this great auditorium. We had a black hotel. Actually, at one point, we had two. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of a sudden, you started seeing Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, and Cab Calloway, and all and these the, people uh, coming uh, to town. But uh, the audiences were mixed. Right. That, right? Was, uh, that was the— For artists like that. Right. Yeah. The, and, and with the depending on the race, if it was a black group, the white people were in the balcony. I don't uh, know if that picture there is an old picture or what is this? Can you tell what that sign says on the corner there? Is that right after it was built, or is that after it was renovated recently? Because in the last I six or seven years, it was renovated. I, I doubt they had that much curbing and, and, and paved streets when it was built. Let me see. It was built. Here's the— 1930-something. 1937. Seven. Um, I think it cost like $50,000 to build. Yeah. It was a WPA project. Mm-hmm. The Crawley family, uh, Jerome Crawley's family, they donated the property for it. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, prior <laughs> to that, there was a, there was actually an Opry, Opera House, not Opry, but mm. there was an Opry House over on um, what's the park over by the railroad credit union with the big fountain in it? Is that folks? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Folk Street. Uh, anyway, over there, yes. that's where the Opera House was. It's and the behind original, the post office. Yeah, it was the original was, uh, and the American Legion was over there too. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, all of a sudden, 
you start, uh, I, I printed out this list. In 1939, uh, you had the fifth annual Southeast Georgia Singers, what they call it, convention. The Singers Convention. Yes. Okay. Had an attendance of 7,000 people. Good Lord. That wasn't like the gospel. Well, it led it. years later. To the, this was all amateur people that would compete. To, and it didn't have to be, but it was probably probably all, predominantly gospel music. Well, country more. Country, because yeah. also, uh, before that, the week before that, we had the fiddling convention with 4,000 people there. Man. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, with that balcony, um, it was. That was back when people were starved for entertainment. Though. They'd come from the woods. Oh, yeah. Um, for for but, a fiddling convention. Yeah. And, but. By and the all night scenes that used to happen in Waycross, too, were. That didn't, that didn't happen until. Um, let me see. Any, I'll get up to it. But, you know, starting in 41, we had Fats Waller. <laughs> yeah. um, we had Ella Fitzgerald. Um, we had Louis Armstrong. And then we had another singer convention with 8,000 people here. And in August, we had Cab Calloway. Yes. And, you know, Cab Calloway was early rock and roll. Yeah. And then... World premiere of the Swamp Water Motion Picture. Then that was uh, the Walter motion Brennan. picture film filmed in the Okefenokee Swamp. But and, uh, you know, it just kept going. Lucky Starring Millinder. Walter Brennan. Yeah, Lucky Millinder, Louis Jordan, Erskine Hawkins. That, that's an important name because he was the first to have what was called a progressive big band, and Dizzy Gillespie was here with him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Then uh, starting in about 45, you started seeing more country. Um, had Ernest Tubb here, mm-hmm. and then Billy Eckstein with Dizzy Gillespie, Roy Acuff, um, Louis Armstrong again, the Nicholas Brothers tap dancers with Dizzy Gillespie. That was uh, the black yes, uh, tap, tap uh, dancers. Yeah. Joe Leggins and his honey drippers. Ella Fitzgerald, and then, you know, saw 46, we had Minnie Pearl, mm-hmm. and we also had the WSM Radio Paul Howard and State Fiddlers Convention. Get this now, 47, the New York Opera Company performed Rigoletto and Carmen Good inside. Uh, Tiny Bradshaw, Big Joe Turner. Um, then 48, it was, it was country come to town. You had Ernest Tubb, Roy Acuff, Cowboy Copas. He died mm-hmm. in a plane crash with Patsy Cline. Mm-hmm. Um, Carmen Cavallero, Sister Rosetta Tharp, uh, and the, uh, the singing convention in 49, uh, it, Hovey Lister and the Statesman, they were the very first professional group to be added to the lineup that would keep going until it became the All Night Sing. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the Statesman, Lefevers, the Happy Two, Happy Goodman family. Um, 
the Spear family and the Blackwood brothers, um, statesmen, you know, and then it, it was just like uh, Hank Williams Sr. Check out that uh, <laughs> Hank poster over there. Um, and you had... Now, are these the posters that you recreated? These are the recreation posters. What I did is I, I took the, uh, I took all the, these were taken from the advertisements in the Waycross Journal Herald or the uh, Negro Supplement to the Waycross Journal Herald. And what I did is I took the picture, and that's exactly the way the picture looked in the ad. Mm -hmm. And with all of the, uh, all of the, you know, the songs that were plugging at the time, mm -hmm. um, and the people that were on it, and then of course, you know, I wanted to put uh, where how much it was to get in—a buck, buck and a quarter. Yeah. Um, Hank Ballard. Some people thought he was from Waycross because he played here so much. It is really uh, Hank Hank Ballard in the Midnighters, um, and of course Elvis Presley on this poster. I have the wrong date. I need to go back and change it. Yep, it was. Uh, June, uh, no, it was no, February 22nd. Now, February. Elvis Presley, Maybell and June Carter, Justin Tubb, and the Leuven brothers, which mm -hmm. was, some people think that's where Graham fell in love with the high lonesome. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing about this this uh, concert. Uh, when Graham Parsons, or uh, at the time his name was Graham Connor. Right. Uh, was living in Waycross in 1956. He was nine years old and a huge little fan of Elvis Presley. And uh, he attended this concert right here on, on the screen, this flyer. And uh, when you look at it, uh, he was introduced to the king of rock and roll, Elvis that night, who he's a big fan of, and he was also introduced to the music of the Leuven Brothers. And fast forward years later, when he became uh, Graham Parsons, the Graham Parsons who went out to Los Angeles and started uh, playing with the Birds and formed a group called the Flying Burrito Brothers, and then. Uh, discovered Emmy Lou Harris and recorded his own albums. Uh, many of the songs that he uh, recorded uh, were Leuven Brothers covers. Mm -hmm. uh, I, Cash on the Barrelhead, uh, in particular, uh, that well, was on. Well, you and I have talked at length for years about mm -hmm. Graham and. Uh, could I, it all? Could it have all? Yeah, been I, because of that night. I, That's I'm what I wonder. Of, I'm kind of fifty-fifty on Graham, you know. Huh? I'm kind of fifty-fifty about Graham. What do you mean? Well, a lot of people will. There are certain things that he did. I I don't particularly care for. Me personally, does it? That doesn't have any bearing on whether or not it's good or bad. Um, but you're talking about musically. Yeah. Did he do? Yeah. Okay. And and also, it's it's kind of hard to get the truth. About Graham sometimes because you know he had trouble with the truth himself. Well, yeah, some of the people, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I I think, and this is from me the uh, the academic historian. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
And that's pretty much the way I research all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think I've got seven Graham Parson books in my personal library. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you've got to listen to his music, too. But I don't think that Graham really hit on the right thing until he hooked up with Emmylou. I really, I like the stuff that he did with her. Mm-hmm. And she was the first person that ever slapped him on the back of his head and said, wake up, we're going to practice. Because <laughs> yeah. we, we sucked last night. Yeah. Uh, I think that, I think that, the Leuven brothers connection finally clicked yeah. when he, when he, uh, landed, uh, Emmy Lou. I, I really, I like this stuff. I would like to have seen what he would have been. Um, it's one of these I would like to have known. Um, you know, I, I just think that his career would have been so, there would have been so much more from him. Mm-hmm. Well, if, it, did, it did get better as it, as yeah. it went. But that to yeah. me, that was that was the that was to me the aha moment. Mm-hmm. You know, when he started writing, and uh, and he had Emilio's voice in his head, mm-hmm. and he knew, okay, I'm not going to have to try to convince these people to do this. I'm not going to have to try to teach them how mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, I'm not going to worry about whether or not they've ever heard any of this kind of stuff before. No, he knew right then, and he wrote that, and he heard Emilio's voice in his head. He knew, boom, mm-hmm. that song. But, you know, it's funny because we talked before the camera started rolling about Graham's uh, half-brother uh, from Berrien County, and that was, he was adopted into my family. My aunt on my father's side um, handled the adoption. She was an attorney and, and, the, uh, and the comptroller for Snively Grove Box Company. But on the other side of my family, my grandmother used to run the record department at the Ware Tire Company. That's where that, he bought his That the Lipsy's owned. And That's where Graham bought his little 45. And I too. asked my grandmother before she passed away, I said, Mom, well, Grandma, do you ever remember <coughs> this kid, Graham Parsons, that used to come in? Graham and, Connor. Yeah, Graham. And she said, uh, you know how old he was? She just, she just kind of, mm, she shook her head. She said, I felt sorry for that poor boy. She remembered him. Yeah, she said he would come up, always, <laughs> black man driving a big car, yeah. get out, open the door, let Graham out. Maybe Graham would uh, have somebody okay. with him. She said, but I do remember that where everybody else would, like, get a forty-five that, you know, you'd saved. Yeah. He, he got as many handfuls as he wanted. And oh, she yeah. said he was the only kid in the world that had a tab. <laughs> that they came in and paid, but she was like, I felt so sorry. He was, there was nobody never with that poor little old And he boy. had a wild haircut, too. Um, so that was uh, kind of like Kevin Bacon, seven degrees of whatever. And that know. little boy right there, he is eat up with cool. <laughs> yeah. He, he said, that, that is some assured self-confidence but right she, there. But she said he was so, it was so sad. And that's probably about a seven-year-old picture, I would say. Uh, maybe Guess, a little older. Maybe a little older. He's a little heftier than seven, I think. That could, yeah, be, could be eight or nine, huh? I don't know. But, yeah, it's um school picture right there. You know, uh, it, now that the, is that is some new news. That's uh, barely even four years old now. Somebody uncovered all that about Graham 
having a half brother. That was some some big big I, news. You know, and there's a lot of people out there, maybe some of y'all listening or watching that ain't got a clue about that. But yes, that is a that is a new I'll chapter. To, I'll get you that. That uh, I'll get you the picture. That uh, I think uh, Bob Keeling had something to do with it. The guy that uh, that uh, he's an author out of uh, Orlando, Florida. And uh, he wrote a book. Um, I would have my notes here, but I left them at the house, and my son Connor will be bringing them over uh, uh, for for us to share with you. Uh, the tale of the week this week references the city auditorium, and uh, the, a lot of the stuff that you've already said is in that. But uh, we also talk about in in that we talk about uh, Bob Keeling. And his trip up to Waycross, uh, he came up to uh, one of the Grand Parsons guitar pools one year, and then he found out that Charlie Leuven was performing in 2009 and, ar- and, and arranged for, uh, asked, there's Bob, uh, called me and asked me if I could arrange a interview with Charlie Leuven at the city auditorium. Wow. And... Uh, it's, I'm telling my tale of the week uh, as we go, but uh, it just so happened that my brother's uh, daughter, Mary Beth Kennedy, was working for the uh, uh, Downtown Development Authority or something to do with the Waycross, and uh, she made it happen. And sure enough, Bob and uh, Charlie sat down at the city auditorium where he performed the night of Elvis Presley and yeah. and Graham saw them all at the same time. But, uh, you know, I think that in some ways the Lubin brothers might've been more influence on him than Elvis. He already knew about Elvis. Mm-hmm. I, I got a feeling when the Lubin brothers hit, I kind of cocked his ear. I think it's great. Uh, it's just fantastic yeah. to think about what that, that moment <laughs> could have caused, you yeah. know, well, you know, the thing is, though, about the city auditorium is a lot of times when it was in use, even when um, when big names weren't there, they they did square dances oh, there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, boy. You know, you had, you had the Dell Brothers. matches. They had wrestling you matches. You had the Dell Brothers Palmetto Band. Have you ever heard of that one? The Dell Brothers, yeah. Yeah, they were a yeah. big music family in mm-hmm. Waycross at that time. There was... And then you had, while I was doing my research, I was kind of grabbing, you know, different things. And in the in the 30s, uh, I think it was the late 30s, you had a place here called the Hayloft. Oh, yeah, I remember that. On Hayloft. McDonald Street, over there pretty close to one of the overpasses. Mm-hmm. And it was a, quote, supper club. And they had live music in there. And it was, I know at one point it was upscale, and I think later it might have not being so upscale, but you had, you had the uh, the hayloft, and they would have, uh, they'd have local talent and regional talent. Mm-hmm. And there was a fellow that used to come up from Jacksonville, and he had, uh, he had a TV show down there. His name was Toby Dowdy. Toby Dowdy. Okay, and this leads into, uh, I was talking to uh, Edmund Pedrick. Yeah. God rest his soul. Yep. Edmund Pedrick. He was telling me that. Okay, you have to realize that, think about it, 1956, 
Colonel Parker was with Elvis. Mm-hmm. He started January 1, 1956. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Edmund was telling me that the day after the, the big show, Elvis and his manager, who would have been Colonel Parker, mm-hmm. they showed up uh, at Kant's Bennett Sr.'s office because Kant's Bennett Sr. was in charge of the Tobacco Jubilee. That was the big event around here. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to talk to him about getting Elvis on that show. How about it? Well, they made him wait for a while. And finally, uh, Kant's Bennett Sr. sent word out there without even meeting with them. Uh, we got Toby Dowdy, and people will like him lots better. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Turned Elvis down. And so about <laughs> six months later, Kant's Bennett Sr. comes in, and he had seen the the Dorsey Brothers TV show the night before. This was before (laughs) Elvis. Elvis was on? Right. (laughs) So uh, to me, that kind of sums up Wakeroff sometimes. (laughs) Turn down Elvis. And we've had a curse ever since, I think. Well, we were on, was it Time Magazine with the burning of the Beatles record? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wakeroff is known for, there was a, a radio station out, Carswell Avenue, W-A-Y-X. Yep. That is infamous when the uh, American kids started, uh, and radio stations started sponsoring these beetle burnings after John Lennon uh, was misquoted as, yeah. as or, or, or it was taken it, out mis- of context, con- taken out of context yeah. in the press. And, uh, boy, these southern states, southern towns, they 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 had a big old knee-jerk reaction to that. And, uh, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Yeah. I think what he said was if, if Jesus was here and the Beatles had a concert, that more people would go see the Beatles than would go see Jesus. Right, right. Yeah, it was, it was certainly yeah. taken out of context. He didn't mean it by anything by it. And yeah. even in England, it would just went by as totally unnoticed. It's know. funny because people went but over here, records to have them mm, to bring them to burn. Mm-hmm. And you know, they they, well, you know, even Colonel Parker. There's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> From the dog catcher himself. There it is, right there, the one in the middle. That's uh, the one below below you, Curse. That one right there. That's the the famous Waycross, W A Y X beetle burning. Yep, we know how to get on the news, buddy. <laughs> ah, there they are. I I wish I knew some of them people that we could uh, quote names there. I know I have them on. <laughs> I guess that's the TV guy or the radio guy there with the microphone. Yeah. Billy Ray and Johnny Bennett, who grew up on my road, uh, claims, well, I know he's, I mean, they were there. They rode their bikes all the way across town. (laughs) And they weren't there to burn, though. They said they saw a couple, uh, you know, it was about nighttime when this was happening. They started uh, throwing them in the fire, and they said that a couple of them frisbeed right through the fire and on the other side, and, they ran around there and picked them up, kept them, and uh, jumped on their bicycles and ran a road. <laughs> well, I tell you, the I think that me personally, um, one of my frustrations with Waycross music has been that 
we don't have more a sense of overall unity uh, across uh, genres and everything else. Uh, not only supporting each other, but combining some of these unique qualities we have to come up with our own Waycross, real Waycross sound. Um, a lot of good songwriters here, a lot of good players um, of both black and white, country, rock, uh, you know, contemporary, it's, it's all here. Mm -hmm. I just would like to see more of it come together and so they kind of come up with their own hybrid um, using all of the good musicians we have around here. I mean, what you and Sean do is great. Y'all do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but there's just so many good musicians here. And the sad thing is, is there's, there's really such a limited number of places to play. Mm -hmm. um, I know that when you and I— I think it, it, it happened. It was happening— a little more regularly back when there was uh well the creek had a little bit of an influence there yeah, for they, a short they, while and that that people were coming together right. around that because we had Moses uh -huh. Studevin on drums black guy oh yeah and when I was working at Crosstown Music there was a big influx of right. different uh uh genres and styles yeah. coming through you know country gospel black church music and uh we pulled off of that and uh, yeah i mean it, there was one time uh in the backyard uh at one of the early guitar pools we had moses on drums paul on bass and brad williams on lead guitar i think it was a trio and uh, that was it but jazzy uh, funk mm -hmm. it was good yeah, and there's, you know, so many really great musicians have come through here. You got Danny Moore, um, who they still hold an annual birthday celebration. Was he Danny, the trumpet player? Trumpet player. Yeah. Uh, he played, he was a consummate sideman. Um, he played with Basie and all of those. Uh, every year they have a performance at, at the Jazz Church in New York to celebrate him. And, mm -hmm. you know, you got Graham and then you got guys like, uh, Will Denton, who's gone to Nashville, oh, yeah. and the guy oh, yeah. who's the guy over in um, from Blackshear. What was the guitar picker's name? Um, Shot Jackson. No, no, um, about our age. Tony uh, a little younger. He played with the Statlers. Oh, 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 yeah, I know who you're talking about. I can't remember his name though. Yeah, about yeah, he's about Philip Walker's age. Yeah, yeah. But you know, there some people have have I gone. Totally forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, it's uh. A lot of, you know, there's a lot of talent still here. Mm -hmm. um, I, what were some of the bands that you played in back in the day? Well, the first local band I played in was a group called High Jinx. High Jinx. And who, this is 77, 78. Uh, we had four black guy, four white guys and three black Rock. guys. Rock. It was <laughs> Alan Davis played keyboards. Um, Rip Snow played okay. lead. Yeah. Bob Tanner played rhythm. Then we had a, a black kid named Droop. Uh, I mean, named Wimp. Okay. And, and the first rehearsal we had, Wimp only had three guitars on his bass. Three strings on his bass. Three strings on his bass. And he couldn't even tell you the names of the strings, what son he could play. And, he didn't need that force one, did he? <laughs> and uh, Andrew Johnson, Droop. Droop was in Wild and Peaceful. 
Drew? Droop. Droop. Yeah, Andrew. Well, where am I getting a rock? From? Well, Rock Rock House was the saxophone player and vocalist. He was in that band. Yes, Ijinx. Okay. So you know we had we had two. It was a it was a band ahead of its time. I mean, yeah. we had some rap stuff going on, and uh, I remember we did Rapper's Delight when when it came out. Wow. But we we would play, we would play. You know, you and I had the luxury back in the day that you had two clubs in town that ran entertainment six nights a week. You had the Fox, Fox Trap, Trap and Sir Henry's. Okay. You worked the door at Sir Henry's some, didn't you? I did. Yeah. But you could was, always go out and hear the good music. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, you could, but we would play. You know, we would play one night at a at a black uh, at a you know we play at a white you know club, and we played our Skinner and all of that, and we did Mother's Finest, Baby Love. We did you know we were a hardcore funk band, mm -hmm. and the next weekend we would play at the uh, American Legion over on Dorothy Street. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you, we played Leonard Skinner in the at the black. American Legion, but we also played Rock Skate Rule Bounce. And they were accepting of it, though. Yeah, yeah because okay. we were, you know, music's music, people are yeah. people. Mm -hmm. But um, I've just, I've bounced around. I, I played in a little society band with Joel Williams. There's more money oh, yeah. doing. Yeah, there was more money Remember doing him? that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I played in a, when I was in college, I played in a band out of Vidalia called the Missing Links Band. Um and over the years, we I, Sean wrote a, me and Sean wrote a song, and, and we we named the band the fake band in the song. We named it the Missing Links. The Missing Links. You know that was one of Chicago's early names. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, probably my favorite group, and and I used to, and I still do. You know, I was the official sit-in guy or fill-in guy. Yeah. You know that if somebody's sick or whatever, you know, call Bill. And but I played for years with uh, in a weekend band with Bruce Wood. Uh, Bruce is uh, Bruce is dealing with some health issues right now too, and just one of the finest drummers I've ever played with. Such a I grew up across the street from simple, yeah. from simple, Bruce? consistent mm -hmm. timekeeper of Where just was that at? right across the street from my mom's. Not Bruce the White, lived down there. Yeah, not the White yeah. House, but okay. the brick house yeah. to the right. Uh, we had. Uh, and for a while, we had Philip Walker and Tony Cason in that group. And then they left to start another band. And we brought Rocky in to sing with that group. And Steve Glisson played guitar, played bass. What's the name of this one? Uh, we started out as, well, it was the backup band actually for Joey and Junior when they started back working as the Bushmen. Yeah. Uh, and after that, we were called, I don't even remember. Wasn't that a kind of an oldies band? Oh yeah, it was a it like was a time, uh, time time. It was a kicking soul band. Oh man, uh, we had a. I remember seeing a video of y'all. Yeah, we you know we did the whole. Saint Simon's, yeah, we Emmeline's. were. You know there was there was plenty of work back then, and that was that mm. was one of my uh, favorite um, you know local band gigs because it was such an unselfish flashback. Yeah, flashback, and then midnight? we were the Midnight yeah. Movers. Midnight after the Movers, Wilson Pickett song. Mm -hmm. But that that was probably my favorite band. Uh, it was so unselfish. The groove, 
nobody cared about playing a solo. No, it was we, the most important thing. David Hess was playing guitar with us, and mm-hmm. probably one of the best soul rhythm players I played with. And you know, you're you're right up there at the top of the list too. I, Dave plays great soul rhythm. I remember I forgot that till we played the Percy Sledge gig, and you were just. Chanka chank chank, man, you were just laying that, you know, <laughs> Bill Smith playing all this fancy stuff, but that don't hold the groove down. But um, but you know, I, I've I've done fill in work with old Bill Dill and the Rondells, and mm-hmm. um, you know, different agency bands, and they just bust full up, pick me up, and I'd go play in the Hilton Head or whatever, collect a paycheck. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, I. I think I probably sat in and played with everybody. Um, yeah. When Skip went to Nashville, I I sang with uh, Alibi until they lined up for old, Scott uh, Nickel, buddy Skip Sasser, who's not with us anymore. No. Um, Another local Waycross. I one time they called me and singer said, George was on the way to the gig. They played a little nights. Nice. George is on the way to the gig. Uh, can, he had a wreck. Can you come play keyboards till he gets George here? George Farr? Yeah. <laughs> so I went down and played keyboards. I <laughs> I played bass with them some, uh, you know, whatever. People call me, I'll show up and play. Count me off. We ready to go. <laughs> uh, it won't be fancy, but it'll be solid. Well, here's another angle that uh, we hadn't discussed yet. Billy Ray Heron. We talk about a lot on here. He's another local musician, songwriter, historian. Uh, he's Big Grand Parsons uh, historian. Uh, he owned a studio in his backyard, uh, probably back in the eighties, and uh, he was fixing to upgrade to a new system. And he had his old equipment for sale, and you walked in one day and said, I'm here to buy it. Yeah, what I I should have done was just gone out Jackson Highway and opened up my wallet driving 100 miles an hour going down the road. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you ended up, though, uh, building a studio of your own out there. Blackshear Avenue. Blackshear Avenue. Yeah. And uh, learned a lot, but lost a lot of money. What was the name of that studio? Tracks. Tracks. That's right. Yeah. I uh, performed in there one time. Yeah. Uh, um, maybe more that. than more than once. But this one time, uh, I, I recall it was a like a public service yeah. announcement. Don't drop or out. Don't drop out. Yep, I remember and that. And I, I can't remember who was behind that. Cookie D'Amico had something to I do with it. I remember Rhonda Wasn't she Wood, a radio? Yeah, Rhonda Wood was involved in it, and some friend of hers, I think, did part of the lead vocal. Yeah, I remember that uh, yeah. good-looking gal. And uh, I guess I played rhythm guitar. Probably. You must have been the only guitar picker there. I guess we had a band, didn't we? I, Some uh, they were a drummer, yeah. rhythm, bass, whatever, and and uh, I was just engineering on that gig. Yes, that, yeah, that was your studio. Yeah, but I wasn't really. It was in the on old it. song "Don't Hang Up" yeah, by whoever. Exactly. Yeah, the Orlons or whoever. It's an old '50s song. Oh no. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, and recording. That's the thing. Don't drop out. It must have been a uh, like a national education. Yeah, something I, to do with don't drop out of school. I've recording. If I had one constant in my career, that's probably it. Um, is recording. I've, I've, I think it's where I do my best work. Uh, I've actually got six CDs out on iTunes and Amazon. Uh, got a company out of uh, Canada that handles them for me, um, and I get a, like a penny a year from Spotify <laughs> and Pandora. Sons of. Uh, have you seen the 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 meme of the picture of the uh, of the jeans? You know, with the pocket where you know in in workers' jeans, you have that thing where you can slide your pencil in. Oh yeah. You, have you seen that before? Somebody got a picture of that, and they said, "You know what that little thing is? That's where you put musicians you put the money they get from Spotify." <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that um, but yeah, you know I've got that stuff out there and uh, it's, solid uh, gold sex. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was a matter of fact that was my introduction to Rodney Mills. He mixed and mastered some of my stuff for oh, me. Okay. Um, so you know it's um. It's still what I enjoy doing the most now, um, and I'm getting ready to release a bunch of. I'm getting ready to release 150 Ableton live tracks for churches. 150. What kind tracks of? for all the songs? You know they do in these contemporary churches and all. Uh, background music. Yeah, just background tracks. Well, yeah. For Ableton is a is a multi track format to use live. I can't understand what you're saying. Ableton? Ableton. Ableton. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry, my, my that, talking is no, clear. I, no, I apologize for... No, that's but, all right. Uh, but no, Ableton, it, is that like a... Uh, 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 it's a multi-track format that format. you can use okay. live. Gotcha. And it loads quickly, and what you can do with Ableton is... They can go in there and turn off <coughs> what tracks. Let's say they've got a drummer and a bass player and a piano oh, okay. player, or if they want to slow. You can mix it. it. Yeah, you can, uh, or you can change tempos. You can change keys off. Yeah. So yeah. I've got like 150 uh, tracks there, and I'm I'm releasing a hundred. Uh, I call them buskers tracks. Uh, yeah. For horn players, you know, play all the stuff I've used over the years when I played solo. And, mm -hmm. You know, just. Uh, you know, you, it's always about uh, finding what your what your thing is and trying to figure out how to monetize it. Mm -hmm. Because there's, uh, I, I've told people so often that the real question you have is um, is finding a balance between artistic integrity and paying the bills. Mm -hmm. Now, me. I'm not a songwriter. Uh, well, I wrote that. I found love with the Walmart song, but um, I'm not a uh, I'm not a songwriter. I've always been a musician for hire. Yeah. Um, and I, I will play any kind of music you pay me to play. You know. Now, I say that as long as it's done with some type of integrity. Yeah. Uh, where a lot of people they'll only do one thing. Uh, I, I would rather uh, I'd rather play some music that I wasn't crazy about than I would flip burgers at McDonald's. 
So, uh, you know, I've always just kind of played whatever and whatever I showed up to play, I, I gave it my all. I, I never looked at it like, uh, this is so beneath me. No, it's not. People sitting there listening to it want to hear it, and the other people playing it are into it. So mm -hmm. if you can't do that. You need to stay home. <laughs> so. Well, getting back to the uh, recording studio, uh, you were involved in, in this uh, this one too. Uh, you had your recording studio set up at your house. Yep. A couple of blocks away from here. And uh, one year for the uh, Grand Parsons Guitar Pool, uh, we had uh, Ian Dunlop yeah. over from uh, Cornwall, England. Ian was one of uh, Graham's bandmates back in the International Submarine Band. And he became a, a constant uh, guest at headliner at, at the guitar pools beginning in about 2008 or nine. I think 2008 may have been Ian's first year over here. And we had him back every year. But one of the years, uh, you extended the invitation to him because what Ian would would do he had yeah. come come over here to america to perform at the guitar pool and he'd come over a couple of weeks early and just take his time and visit with family and up north and then kind of wind his way down to georgia and once he got here uh he generally would spend the night over at my house and then he'd write songs with sean he'd write songs with me and just kind of piddle around, might get some gigs down in Florida and go over to the coast of Georgia and hang out for a few days. And he was just uh, uh, kind of laid back for a, a, about a month he would spend over here in America before he'd make that big long trip back. But while he was here, he liked to write songs with us and uh, – record as many of them as we could uh at the time i guess the only studio available would have been hickory wind studio and and uh and you offered yeah your services and we did go in there and uh and yeah. record a few tracks yeah there. i was i was not happy at all with with we got one of them right well, here I was not happy with with the work. I, I was having some technical problems with uh, with D to A and A to D conversion between my ADATs and yeah. the other stuff, and we never could seem to get all of the right musicians sitting in there at one time. <laughs> that was the hardest. That was the thing. We never could get the right pickers for the right songs all at one time. That was before was, long. That was long before my son was right, right. old it enough was, to play, and, and right. my son plays a great train beat. Um, uh, yeah, it was. I think Dylan Crosby came yeah. over and played. I mean, when Dylan played, he was fine. It. it was just getting everybody in here sat yeah. down at yeah. the same time. We had a uh, uh, what's his name played steel. Um, Jody uh, Parent. No, his dad was Josh Sharp. Yeah, he came oh. in and played some lap steel, maybe or some dobro and. Um, that was Jody. We, yeah, that was Jody. Yeah, who it, did that. Yeah. that was. I always saw that as kind of a wasted opportunity, because I didn't feel like we ever captured had, it. Ha, we, yeah, we never had the right people 
um, sitting down to play at the right time. That was, and that well, was my take on it. This, I'll, I have to uh, play this or a section of this, and and this to me sounds mighty dang good. Now this is a Ian mix. I think Ian took the original right, right. He tracks the track. back with him. Jody Parrott on the Cobra. Cobra. See if I had a if I had another shot at that, I'd yeah. like you to have Connor in there playing the train beat. We had a love to burn. I thought we were. Yeah, I think that was Dylan on drums yeah. on this. I'd probably do something. What'd you play? Did you play the bass? I did play the bass, but I think he recut the uh, I think I played that little rhythm. Yeah. We recorded several, though. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, we, we, had, we could have done more. You know, we could have had everybody in the right place and had them sitting there long enough to really uh, jail and yeah I'm just another rider we do that song about the credit cards I, I didn't even remember we did this one until we hit plays so yeah. I don't remember which ones we did You had just some <laughs> some good some good harmonica yeah. and and that train beat in there. I like the end of it before it quit. Play it. It, it was uh, it was fixing to do that train leaving the station because we slowly built up speed till it got going faster and faster and faster. You ain't got to play that, but yeah, that's, that's, he. I remember just uh, a cool. Uh, he came over one ending. evening and and we got to hang out and talk and I, I really. You know, like I said, I've been fortunate to get to get to meet and be around a lot of uh, really important people in in music history. Mm-hmm. You know, you from Dizzy Gillespie to Charlie Parker, and you know, I because of of the work that you've done around here, I got to hang out with uh, Ian. I got to meet uh, John Ruiz. Is that how you say his name? Uh, I don't know if we. Where did you yeah, meet he John was Lewis? he was down at he was there the year that uh Phil he, Kaufman was here. No, he's never been to uh 
a guitar pool. Now, Who is John Cornell? John Cornell. Yeah. Yeah. Cornell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I enjoyed getting to know people that were. That, you know what? You hit the nail on the head. That's what matters to me most about the guitar pool. If, if there's anything that I enjoyed the most about it or I'm proud of, the most proud of about having that thing and having it last for so many years is the people that it has brung together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm talking about from all walks of uh, all over the place. And here's an example, and, and you're right at the center of this. Uh, uh, I was working at Crosstown Music, and we had moved from downtown to behind Walmart. Yep. And you were helping me that yep. day because probably I had a gig to go through. You would always come in and spare me when yep. I'd have to leave early. But uh, one afternoon we were we were sitting in there, and uh, in walks this couple <laughs> from uh, – California, California of all places, yeah. but they had uh, they had flown from California to a wedding or a funeral somewhere on the south coast, uh, and uh, they rented a car and were driving south on I ninety five when they came through Brunswick and there's uh, their exit eighty two. Uh, yeah. or, uh, or exit something for Highway 82, right. uh, said uh, Waycross mm-hmm. to the right. And they, they both like looked at yesterday. one another. This was uh, Bill McDonald was yep. his name. So it was. And he and his wife, uh, God rest her soul, she's passed on now. But he and his wife were driving. They both saw that Waycross, Georgia exit, and they said, Graham Parsons. <laughs> and they said, let's go. So yep. they pulled off and came, uh, drove an hour and got to Waycross and came straight to the music store. They, they may have went by the Chamber of Commerce. That's often what people would do from yeah. out of town. They'd go yeah, by the they Chamber were, of Commerce. Bill was, he, he was expecting to like, see a big sign or a statue yeah. or something. Yeah. And they got directed to uh, me out at, out at Crosstown Music. They showed up at the store and... Uh, I said, man, I, I can't leave the store. Bill, you know where Graham's house is. Take this couple over there and show them Graham's house. <laughs> yeah, but. And you did. But if you remember, <laughs> I had, that was the first year we had the lanyards. Oh. And I had made a prototype for you to look at. And it was, you know, the Graham Parsons backstage, at all access, whatever. It had his picture. Was that the weekend of the festival? No, we were working. We were working on the design. Okay, so and it so was, I had, it was like a I week had or a two quote, away. Yeah. Prototype. Oh, and I had it with me, and I gave that to them. Oh, yeah, you and made you would have, yeah, you would have thought it was backstage to the Rolling Stones. He was so mm-hmm. proud of that thing. Now here's the other side of this story. The guy from California, Bill McDonald. Uh, Ended up being a videographer. Yeah, or he'd already been. <laughs> I mean, he he was like he Jacques, was he Jacques was a Cousteau. serious. Yeah. Yeah. He worked for Jacques Cousteau back in the sixties, and uh, he got to he went out on tour with uh, David Crosby and Graham Nash 
when they did their uh, their duo tour, uh, "Wind on the Water," uh, the where they had this huge video video screen set up on stage behind them with the whale footage uh, and everything. It may have been Bill. Bill was hired for that tour, so it was probably his footage yeah. that he shot. So yeah. he knew them personally. Yeah, he Crosby and Nash. Actually, what he would do is he would go to these resorts down in like Micronesia and all, mm-hmm. and they would he would just like basically if you'll pay my expenses, I get all of the leftover film stock, and he had he had this huge library of of uh, video, and so what he he ended up doing is on one of his demos he used. Solid Gold Sax, my CD is the background music on his. Oh, of, really? Yeah, yeah, I've got the DVD at home. <laughs> but I, I see, I don't remember going to the house. I remember the look in his eyes when I took that lanyard off my neck and said, Here, why don't you take this? Oh, man, he was bad. Yeah. I thought he was going to cry. And yeah, he's been back. <laughs> to, oh, yeah. Uh, I think he and his wife came. They weren't able to make that year, but the very next year they came yeah, all the I, way back for I it. remember and going out to the uh, hotel and everything and hanging and, with them. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away. and uh, He did a lot of, he shot a lot of video lot. of, the, pro, of oh, yeah, he's, the year that you had the recording right. thing yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. I was stage manager wow. that year. You know what? Okay, I think that. That's true. So, um, I think we sent him footage that Tim Thrift had uh, videoed some footage from 2007. The last time we had it at Little Nights. And uh, I sent him all of that footage and he laid graphics on top of it and kind of put it all together. That's that's what that was. But he he brought it one Mm. time. When it was out at the fairgrounds, he brought some video equipment. I remember oh, yeah. the uh, that was the year that I helped you as stage manager, and That's you brought in that Charlie truck. Moving. That um, no, Alana yeah. Hines. Okay, and she came that in as a been duo. Two thousand eight. Yeah. That she came in as a duo, yeah. and um, I remember he was he was taking a line off of the off the truck. He had his video camera out there, and he's pulling the video pulling the sound off of that um, truck that sparked back mm-hmm. there. So yeah, he was. I re- Bill was good. He's a good guy. Big Justin, time. I mean, you met him time. too, didn't you? Big. He's. I mean, he. When it comes to that video, and when you work with Jacques Cousteau, yeah, huge. He had, he had a um, some a, kind of a a contest uh, for songwriting songwriting contest, contest for uh, writing Save, songs yeah. about uh, ocean pollution and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, I entered that and wrote a song special for it and uh i didn't place but he gave me like an honorable you remember the song yeah i had i don't remember remember it it Uh, it was called seasick seasick that's good good idea i think ladon drury might have been one of the winners did you know that yeah yeah you remember that yeah i I can't remember the name of his song but uh well you know i had uh, a had a kid come in you talking about songwriters. Um, my college roommate, uh, one of the two, I'd kind of been advising them about their son. He was a, from like eight years old, was really interested in, in music. 
and he mm-hmm. wanted a set of drums. And I told him to get him a, a piano instead, and they did. And I kind of advised him, and my buddy uh, retired from the Air Force in Valdosta. And the kids started coming over when he was a junior in high school. And he was, uh, I hate to say this, because Sean is a, you and, you and Sean both are great songwriters, but this kid, he was, he was the real deal. And I, I worked with him a good bit. And fast forward a few years, he he's he signed a pub he signed a co-publishing deal with Warner Chap and um, Liz Rose, um, and they gave him a sixty thousand dollar signing bonus because he brought <laughs> six hundred completed songs to the table. Mm. What's his name? His name is Seth Ennis. E n n i s. He had a record deal with Sony, and he was with them a couple of years, but they were trying to make him out to be Jason Aldean. And he was making lots more money from. He wrote "Hooked" for Dylan Scott, and um, he he walked away from his uh, his record deal. And he's he's part of that new breed of musicians that are trying to uh, chart their own path in the streaming world by supporting some of the, you know, there's there's uh, there's some other streaming platforms out there other than Spotify and yeah. Pandora. There's one called AWOL. Hmm. There's another one called Bandcamp. Bandcamp, I've heard um, of. And, you know, he basically negotiated his own streaming deal. And, you know, if you're not a top artist uh, you uh, streaming, you're not going to get squat. And right. he's, uh, and he's, real, he's real smart. He's a real good businessman. And, um, I tell you what, on his first release for Sony, he played everything, co-wrote, co-produced it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just never could seem to break through. And if you don't break through, then you're on the, you're on the low end of the pecking order of the streaming, you know, and you don't, I know that, uh, in, in like, uh, 2009, Peter Frampton, uh, Spotify streamed Baby I Love Your Ways 50 million times. And Peter Frampton's cut on it was $1,800. Guy that owns Spotify is worth 2.5 billion. Yeah. Dollars. It just ain't right. So it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a new, it's a whole new ball game for artists, um, and it's a, uh, it's a whole new ball game for streaming services. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, they, no, the, they, but they the thing is, a whole new challenge for artists. Well, yeah. it's it's uh the problem. I I had thought that when, when you started digital downloads, that you'd finally see the artists get the upper hand on the record labels, but the record labels managed to keep their stranglehold on it. But, yeah. you know, the reason I say that is the reason that, you know, people that are watching this, that they need to get out and support Dave and Sean and all the other local artists that are playing. And if they got CDs sitting out there on the table, you need to buy them because you have to download a song uh, for, you have to stream a song on the average about 7,000 times to make what you'd make for one download. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's uh, the people really need to support uh, local musicians, live music and all of that because um, artists have always had to short into that record deal stick. Yeah. And uh, there was actually uh, Seth, there was a, he had a feature article in People Magazine about what he did. Mm-hmm. And um, of course his dad's got 
undergrad degrees in finance and econ. He's got an MBA and he's got a doctorate in management. So, you know, the kid came by it honestly, but, um, you know, just looking at the fact that he realized that uh, he would rather take a, ch take a chance and be in charge of his own fate cool. than he would just keep. Uh, but he's fortunate that, uh, you know, he's got songwriting royalties rolling in. Um, Quantity. Yeah, and he was, he, uh, he, he realized too that he was spending so much. He'd go on these radio station tours for the record label and be gone for a month doing three stations a day. And he said, never got it right. So he just walked away from it. Well, after learning that about Spotify, I'm so depressed now that I think we're going to take a short break. I'm going to walk <laughs> in the kitchen and slash my wrist with the uh, butcher knife. Cheese grater. And, uh, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Hopefully, but hopefully we'll be hold back. Hold on. I, I can hook you up, buddy. Great exposure. <laughs> this, is, this is a great exposure for your career. Yeah. That, that's my favorite. Yeah. That ought to pick we'll, you up. We'll be right back. Something in my brain won't let me stray. Something in my veins gonna find its way. Something in the water taught me how to pray When the cold black water finds its way into your veins You'll never be the same Welcome back folks, it's time for another Tale of the Week from yours truly and uh, this one is exceptionally relevant, considering our fine guest this time. It's all about Waycroft City Auditorium. Throughout history, certain small southern towns have ingrained themselves in the cultural hearts and minds of people around the world. Whether it be through the townsfolk born or raised there who went on to fame and fortune, or a hallowed building whose spirit lingers on, manifested in the ghosts of the music and the people who once played there. Waycross, Georgia is one of those towns. From Ossie Davis and Pernell Roberts to Graham Parsons, Waycross has had its share of famous actors and musicians. It's also home to the Waycross City Auditorium. a stolid brick edifice that has seen the best of the best sing and play on its humble stage. Built in 1937 through the help of the local Lions Club chapter and funding from the Works Progress Administration project, the city auditorium was used for gospel sings, wrestling matches in the 40s, some of the best teen dances in the 60s, high school graduations, I received my diploma. I too. From Ware County High in 1971. 76. As, as my unfortunate classmate Kenneth Hawkins slid headfirst down the stage steps and landed on his nose. It's also home to basketball games and circuses. Over the years, the building fell into disarray, but thanks to our local government and forward thinking citizens, a special-purpose local option sales tax was passed in 
2008, enabling the renovation of the historic building that played host to black, white, blues, jazz, country, and gospel heroes of the day. Just check out this list of who's of who was who in the music biz who at one time graced the auditorium stage. Fats Waller. There wasn't nothing too fat about him. Cab Calloway. Ella Fitzgerald. Louis Armstrong. Sister Rosetta Tharp. Big Joe Turner. Dizzy Gillespie. The Ink Spots, Hank Williams Sr., Ernest Tubb, Roy Acuff, Tex Ritter, Minnie Pearl, Bill Monroe, Kitty Wells, George Jones, Johnny Cash, Ray Price, Webb Pierce, Farron Young, Marty Robbins, Little Jimmy Dickens, Conway Twitty, Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Gal Lombardo. <laughs> That's a list. I'm telling you. But it was the night of February 22nd, 1956, that was a virtual rock toss into cultural waters causing ripples that affected the lives of many, some still to this day. I'm sure the city of Waycross, at least the teenage sector, was abuzz on that Wednesday after reading in the Waycross Journal-Herald that Elvis Presley, country music's Mr. Rhythm, would perform two shows that night at 7 and 9 p.m. Is there any way to blow that up? You can't get that larger, can you? That's just so cool. Yeah. Elvis Presley, as you see there, uh, well, you can't you can't tell there, but they misspelled Mr. Rhythm. Rhythm's a hard word to spell anyhow, but it's got two H's in it, R-H-Y-T-H-M, <laughs> but they left out the first H. They probably had it there, but he when he wiggled, it went away. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And what kills me about this is off seats in advance, $1 at the door, dollar and a quarter. Ooh. Back in my day, I saw Elvis for a dollar. <laughs> yes, On the bill with Elvis were Grand Ole Opry favorites, Justin Tubbs, son of Ernest, the Leuven brothers, oh, Ira and Charlie, Mother Maybell and the Carter sisters featuring June Carter, and a bluegrass fiddler, Benny Martin, all for the price of $1.25 at the door. In the audience that evening was nine-year-old Ingram Cecil Connor III, who would later be known as Graham Parsons, who tagged along with teenage twin sisters Daphne and Diane Delano. It's been said that Graham met Elvis after the show and introduced himself as I'm the little kid that buys your records. What is known is that Elvis had a meteorical impact on Graham Parsons in his desire to become a performing musician following an endless pursuit of stardom. 
Years later, Parsons would record two critically acclaimed country albums entitled GP and Grievous Angel. Using the talents of Elvis's stage band, James Burton on lead guitar, Glenn D. Harden on piano, and Ronnie Tutt on drums. Not to be lost in all this is the performance on February 22, 1956, of Charlie and Ira Leuven, the Leuven brothers, whose songs Graham recorded over the years with The Birds, The Christian Life, and with Emmylou Harris, Cash on the Barrelhead. I booked Charlie as co-headliner of the 2009 annual Graham Parsons Guitar Pool and Tribute Festival, and he was very graciously, and he very graciously recorded his live festival performance and released the CD, Hickory Wind, live at the Graham Parsons Guitar Pool, Waycross, Georgia, in tribute to Graham, the little boy who saw him perform at the City Auditorium 53 years earlier. To continue the ripple effect analogy, in attendance at the 2009 guitar pool was one Bob Keeling, a television broadcast journalist and published author from Orlando, Florida. Bob was in the process of writing a biography titled Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. When he found out that Charlie Leuven was headlining, he called and asked if I could facilitate an interview with the country legend at the Waycross City Auditorium. Of course, we talked about this earlier. My wonderful niece, Mary Beth Kennedy, was in a position of importance with the city and was instrumental in making sure it happened. The Leuven interview framed the final chapter in Keeling's book, thus bringing another story full circle. On June 9th, 2017, the Waycross City Auditorium provided the backdrop for one more full-circle ripple effect get-together. Entitled From Calling Me Home to Elvis Ignited, an event co-sponsored by Safe at Home Productions and Hickory Wind Music, featured a book signing for Bob Keeling's newest effort, Elvis Ignited, and a guitar pool fundraiser showcasing the original music of Waycross's own Pine Box Dwellers in concert. Elvis Ignited tells the story of Presley's early career as he performed all across the South, particularly in Florida and Waycross at the City Auditorium. Bob Keeling, the author, is now retired from Orlando, Florida's WESH-TV he is an Edward R. Murrow and four-time Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist. He's also been influential in the establishment of the Jack Kerouac House in Orlando, a literary landmark in the National Register of Historic Places, and the Grand Parsons Dairy Down, a Florida heritage site honoring the pioneering country rock musician in his birthplace of Winter Haven. On a personal level, it gives me a wonderful feeling to know that our little homegrown tribute festival has brought people of interest together with common bonds and a passion for music. On a cosmic level, though, I know it's the old ripple effect of Waycross, Georgia, and the city's mother church of music, the Waycross City Auditorium. Heck yeah. What a place. What a place. It sure is. 
I never went to any of the teenage dances there. I was sheltered. I saw Eli there. Did you? Yeah. That was a, a top-notch road band. You you mentioned we played there for Bob Killen's book signing. Mm-hmm. Man, what a boomy room, though. <laughs> yeah. I've played there in the last four or five years, too. Dave, yeah. he never he yeah, never had that, to play yeah. the ballroom at the Elks Club, did he? <laughs> you don't know anything. Yeah. 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 And it was slapping back at us. It comes off the walls. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, that we used to call the 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 red room was fun to play. Mm-hmm. The ballroom, the boomatorium. Mm. <laughs> well, it was uh, it was like the block concrete block, like a lunch room. Yeah, except it was tall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They tried to soften it up with them big old drapes, yeah. and they put some tiles up there at some mm. point. But yeah. Well, you know, the 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 auditorium originally had a balcony, mm-hmm. and it would seat about three thousand people mm. with uh, chairs and um, and and my parents used to talk about, or mainly my dad, he'd talk about. I went to see, uh, you know, I saw he named some big band, you know, and I'm mm. like, hi, dad, no whatever. So. Fast forward from talking to my dad to, I guess it's about 1983, and I'm in college at Valdosta State. Mm-hmm. Great jazz program. And we had in, as a guest artist for the week, a man named Red Rodney. And in the jazz world, Red is very well known because he played trumpet with Charlie Parker. Bird. Yes, for Charlie Parker's considered, and you know, the word greatest is thrown around, but it, really he's considered the greatest jazz saxophonist of all time. Um, died, uh, you know, late 30s, I think, and they thought he was about 70. He was, he was the one that got everybody started on heroin um, because everybody thought, you know, to play like Bird, you got to get on heroin. Didn't he jump out a window or something? No, no, that was, that was Chet Baker. But what happened is if you got busted, you lost your cabaret license in New York. If you lost your cabaret license, you could not play in places that had... Um, uh, couldn't, couldn't make a living. Right. So Bird, um, Bird lost his cabaret license. And so here's Red Rodney. All right. You have to understand Red is white, but he's got real kinky red hair, and a real funny complexion. Mm-hmm. And he, so we're in a master class with him, and he, you know, he'd come from L.A., and he, he was like, uh, where's Waycross, Georgia? Mm. And I went, that's where I'm from. It's an hour from here. Why? He said, well, Clint Eastwood is producing a movie about Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge, critically uh, acclaimed movie, but in America it played to roomfuls of crickets. Mm-hmm. But it was just an incredible uh, movie about um, Charlie Parker. Well, so we were talking. He said, "You know," I said, "Why? How do you know about Waycross?" He said, "Well, you know, Bird had lost his cabaret license, and so we were going on tour to the Deep South, and we're talking the forties." And you got four or five black guys and this one white guy. 
traveling to the deep south. Mm. And all the way down, Red kept saying, I was, hey, Bird, man, what are we going to do about me, White? And, I don't worry about it, man. I got it under control. <laughs> and he said, so we pull into, and this is in the movie. Now, it doesn't say Waycross. Yeah. But they pull into town, and there's posters everywhere that say, Charles Yardbird Parker featuring Albino Red Blues Singer. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. so they, they it kinda they got it they got the auditorium in there looking pretty run down maybe. But you know, the all the white people are up in the balcony <laughs> and all the black people are down there and Red said I couldn't sing a lick. And he, it shows him on stage, but he, he was telling me about that. How about and that? then when the movie came out, there it was, you know, and there's Waycross again in a in a big budget uh, I never heard yeah, that story. So I, I never, the movie's called Bird, and I'm ashamed to say I never watched that movie because I might have been one of the crickets in the yeah in it, the theater. I never did. Yeah, he, I never gave it a chance. He but told I me about I love Clint Eastwood. Though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But when he told me that, and then I went went watched the movie, I, I I could just see my dad up in the balcony, you know, carrying on. That's going to be my assignment for tonight. That'll give that'll give me some good. Uh, I like it's, to it's tough to kick follow. back and watch a movie and it, go to sleep. It's a tough follow. It's, it a, it's a tough follow. Oh, as far as watching it, it's yeah, hard to watch. Okay. And very sad. I mean, he uh, he was um, he was one of the first who suffered and died for his art. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's some country singers and blues singers and all, but. How did he die? Was it uh, heroin or? Just. Yeah, it finally wiped him out completely, mm. and he he went. It got to the point where he couldn't play anywhere, and there was a, a lady up there, um, and she was kind of like a countess who had plenty of money, and he was supposed to go out of town and play, and he went by her place, and um, he was feeling too weak to leave to go to the gig, and she called a doctor, and the doctor came in and saw him and said, this man needs to be in the hospital. He's... And Bird wouldn't go, and he was sitting there watching the Dorsey Brothers TV show and just died. Oh, man. And when they when the ambulance came to, you know, the meat wagon came, uh, he was an unidentified person, and they said estimated age like 70, and he was in his 30s. Wow, wow. Yeah, he, but he, uh, you know, he and Dizzy Gillespie, they founded that bebop movement, mm -hmm. and uh, they they basically – they completely elevated chord structure, you know, because up until then it was all about the triad and the seven. And then all of a sudden Dizzy and Bird, they started they started grabbing all those flat nines and elevens, all the upper tones. They started, mm. that was the beginning of bebop. And he just, he went almost like Robert Johnson, went away one summer. Uh, he was in a jam session and he got booed off the stage and he went away one summer and stayed out in the woods and came back a beast. <laughs> but yes, sir, right here at Oh, the you city. left out that he, he met the devil, too. You know? yeah. <laughs> he probably met him in Waycross. <laughs> he, he met him at Crossroads. Uh, Crossroads. Man. <laughs> well, folks, if, uh, if you found this episode hard to follow, like the Charlie Parker movie, <laughs> you ain't the only one. That's flat sevenths and minor majors and triads and all that stuff goes right over this old boy's head. <laughs> but you have to be uh, uh, a band director no, to no. 
to uh, and a good musician well. to know them kind of things. And that's what our guest tonight, Mr. Bill McIntosh. We appreciate you coming on, man, Bill. It's, it's fun. been it's been a good one. Yeah, I, man, uh, a lot of fun. Heck yeah, man. I enjoyed uh, actually. <laughs> learned more on this episode tonight than I have in, in many of the past ones. So that yeah, was a lot of good history. Good There's history. There's so much here. I mean there really is, that's yeah. it, it's the articles that I did a number of years ago, they were good. Mm-hmm. Um but it was just a start really yeah. of, of the the uh incredible heritage that this town has and still has and is still mm-hmm. creating. You know? And folks, that's why they call it Something in the water. We appreciate y'all watching and tune in again. See you next time. Hey.